At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're in the third and final part of our look at the first couple of chapters of 2 Corinthians, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And in these few verses today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Now, that, when I say that word, when I mention that topic, probably your heart opens up. Probably your ears open up. You might lean in a little closer because we instinctively understand our need for forgiveness, don't we? I mean, after all, all of us sin. All of us fall short. So when we think before God, we certainly need forgiveness. We have fallen short of his glorious standard. But even horizontally, even inside of the church, maybe even inside of this room, we have a sense and a feeling that we also need forgiveness from another. So when I mention the topic of forgiveness, you lean in because you want to receive it. But this morning, we're not only going to talk about receiving forgiveness. We will talk about that. But we're also going to talk about extending forgiveness. Now, when I say that, your heart begins to close, your ears turn off, and you begin to lean out. Because while we so often freely want forgiveness given to us, we also want to extend forgiveness only very conditionally. And yet, what we see in the scripture is a call not only for us to be forgiven in Christ, but also for us to be a community that forgives one another. We're going to see this today by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If you've got a Bible, take it out and turn there. I want to read these few verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make three observations about forgiveness for each of us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ." so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, friends, in these few verses today, we're going to see three things about forgiveness. So what are those three things? Well, the first thing that we need to see is this. We need to understand Satan's sinful schemes. We need to understand Satan's sinful schemes. Now, we see this referenced in verse 11, the last verse that I just read. But it reminds us that we have a real adversary, a real accuser, someone who really is opposing the work of God in the world, and that is none other than Satan himself. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not an exaggeration, but he's a true enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone 
to devour. We have a true enemy. And this enemy desires to to take us out. And so we need to be mindful of his work. To not, as Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 tells us, to not give him a foothold in our lives or a foothold inside of our church. We are to give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, there are some things that we can do that can make it difficult for Satan to have an impact inside of our fellowship. So, We see that mentioned in Ephesians 4. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the verses I just read, we are instructed to be aware of his designs, that we not be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, Satan is not omnipotent and he is not omniscient, but he is repetitive There are patterns to his behavior. There are things that he will do in repetition. And we need to be aware of those things. That he would not have a foothold inside of our lives or even inside of our church. So what are those things that Satan does? Well, his ultimate objective is to divide and to devour. It's not to see the church united. It's to see the church in factions. It's to see the church upset with one another, backbiting and stabbing and attacking one another. That's part of his objective as it relates to the church of Jesus Christ. It's to divide us. It's to seek to devour us, to take us off mission, to minimize our influence in the world. Now, how does he do that? Well, his designs are are repetitive. There are a couple of things that he does in repetition. Maybe not the only things he does, but certainly these are two things that Satan tries to do in the world to minimize the influence, to keep the church off mission. What is it? Well, the first thing that he does is he tries to convince us to ignore sin, to ignore sin, or even to celebrate it. That's what Satan tries to do with us. He tries to have us take an attitude towards sin that says that sin's not really that sinful. It's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. To shrug our shoulders, to look the other day, the other way, to to wink, wink in the direction of sin. Or in the most excessive versions of this, to ultimately celebrate sin in some way. Now, we've seen this play out in our culture in many different ways, haven't we? where the influence, satanic influence in the world has the church want to look the other way on sinfulness, things in our sexual lives, things in the way that we handle truth or, or the way that we relate to one another, wants to cause us to go, well, those aren't that big of a deal. Or even to, to celebrate things the Bible calls sin through expressions like homosexual marriage or, or something else. See, friends, there's a design that Satan has, and one of the things he wants us to do is he wants us to ignore or to celebrate sin. But there's a second thing that he tries to get us to do, not necessarily just to ignore sin or to celebrate it, but when it's, when it's known, he wants us to be unforgiving. He wants us to lack grace. Satan, the, the word literally means as an accuser. He wants to point out sin and laugh and scoff and say that you are done. You are, you are finished. You are canceled forever and ever in the, in the light of God because of what you have done. You are 
worthless. And he tries to convince even collections of believers to take a similar attitude towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. These are two extremes, but they both are strategies that Satan wants to develop around the people of God. If we think of these two as as like ditches on either side of the road, we might come to an understanding that, that, that people and even churches have a tendency to end up in one of those ditches. Now, the church in Corinth, I believe, struggled with both of them. But for us today, and even us as individuals, one of these might be your greater temptation. You might have a greater temptation to ignore sin or to celebrate it than to be unforgiving. Or you might have a a greater temptation to be more pharisaical, to, to draw a hard line, and if somebody makes a mistake, regardless of their hard attitude, they are done forever. Well, if those are Satan's strategies, how do we drive down the middle of God's plan? How do we stay on mission and not end up in one of those ditches? Well, it's interesting. We don't have time to get into this too much, but in Ephesians chapter 4, we really have a, a parallel passage to what we're going to see today in 2 Corinthians 2. Remember, this is the passage in the middle where he says, give no opportunity to the devil. Well, if you look at the fuller context, how do we not give an opportunity to the devil? Well, we, we, we speak the truth. We, we confront sin. We, we don't ignore it. We don't celebrate it. We deal with it. But also, on the other extreme, we forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. How do we keep the devil from having a foothold? We speak the truth and we forgive one another. Well, this is something not just mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, but certainly it's something we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time as we look a little more in depth at what Paul says to the Corinthian church related to not allowing Satan's plans to take root, to have a foothold inside of the church. So what were they to do? Well, he tells them to be aware of Satan's sinful schemes But then he tells them to confront sin, to confront sin. This is something we see clearly in verses 5 and 6. See, there there was a sin that had been committed or a pattern of sin that had been committed in a very public way in the church in Corinth. Uh, What was that sin? Honestly, we don't know. We don't know. Because the content of Paul's severe letter, remember last week, instead of making a trip to Corinth, we talked about how Paul sent them a stern letter. He sent the stern letter to to activate them to address a sinful pattern or a sinful person who was causing great pain inside of the church to do something about it. He writes them this severe letter. And in that letter, he probably detailed the situation. But in 2 Corinthians, his follow-up note, we don't get the detail of what the sin was. But there was a sin that had been committed. And it was a sin that had caused pain inside of the church. It seems like it probably was someone who had risen up, who was dividing people away from the Apostle Paul who was slandering his name in some way. We don't know what the root issue was behind it, but they were calling Paul all kinds of names. They were saying that he was worldly. Some of the stuff we saw last week, and they were trying to take him out to take people away, not just from Paul, but from the message that he was preaching. The church was being pained because of this. 
Rather than Paul saying, you know that guy that was hurting me, Paul emphasizes the pain that that person had caused the church in Corinth. He says, remember that pain that he caused you. Remember the the divisions that existed in your congregation because of what he did. Remember the, the sleepless nights that you had, the extended frustrating conversations Remember how the the testimony of the church in Corinth was impinged in some way because of the sin that was unaddressed in the community. Paul says, remember the pain that was caused in that moment. And Paul says that they needed to address it. Now, how would they have addressed this sin? How would they have addressed it? Well, they probably would have addressed it, which is something that they did, by the way. After that severe letter, apparently the Corinthians addressed the situation. Apparently they addressed it. Apparently they, they, they spoke to the individual. We'll see that in just a moment. And they confronted him. But how did they do that? Well, they probably did it in light of Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus provides instruction about how confrontation of sin is to happen among believers in his name. In Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What Jesus was saying was, if someone has sinned against you, try to bring that up to the individual to give them a chance to repent. And many times, that's the end of it, right? You sinned against me and they say, I'm so sorry. I recognize what I did and I apologize. And there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation and the path and the pattern is not developed. But occasionally, that's not enough. Occasionally somebody says, I am not wrong in this situation. In which case, others who are aware of the situation come along to help add greater clarity. In other words, is there a misunderstanding? Should the truth be made known more clearly? And if that happens and the sin is clearly identified and the individual is still unwilling to repent, then church leadership is brought in. And if they do not respond even to church leadership, then punishment comes even the expelling of someone from the church fellowship. This is the instruction that Jesus gave, and apparently the church in Corinth practiced something like this. See, they went to this person who had caused this pain, who had this pattern of sin. They confronted him. They brought witnesses. They confronted him. The church leadership got involved. They confronted him, and the person in sin did not respond. And so apparently they removed this person from the fellowship a severe punishment by the majority, by the church, was inflicted, and this person was probably kicked out of the congregation. The sin was confronted. But as the sin was confronted, what happened? When it finally got to that spot where the person was removed from the fellowship of the church, what happened next? Well, apparently, friends, the sinner then repented. The sinner then had their heart changed in turn and they came back into fellowship. We, we, we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. It says, as it is, I rejoice, Paul says, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. 
We see evidence of what repentance really is here. It's not just an emotion. It's not just, I got caught. It's not just, oh, I feel kind of bad about that. I feel bad for how that made you feel. It's actually an admission of wrong, followed by a turn in behavior. That's what happened with this individual. When it gets to this point, they realize they're in the wrong, and they confess their sin, and they they begin to walk in another direction. And it followed the fact that their sin was confronted. So what do we learn from this? Well, what we learn from this is that public persistent sin must be dealt with for the good of the sinning person as well as the protection of the congregation. Public persistent sin must be dealt with for the good of the sinning person as well as the protection of the congregation. It's for the good of the sinning person in that their sin is pointed out to them. Sin is not good for us. It allows them the chance to repent and to bring their back in alignment with their life back in alignment with God's good plan and will for their life. And it's protection for the congregation as well because it prevents a celebration of sin or an ignoring of sin from inspiring others to sin as well or to walk into doctrinal impurity. And so we see this pattern play out. But we also learn something else. We also learn that we are reminded that this approach does bear fruit. It does bear fruit. Now, that doesn't mean it bears fruit every time. You know, there are are many times when sin is confronted and somebody just walks away from your life forever. There are times when sin is confronted even by church leadership and people walk away from the church forever. And that is certainly not the intent. But that is what happens from time to time. But what we see here is that it does bear fruit in the heart of those who are truly following Christ. This individual had been confronted of their sin and they turned and came back and their life was changed as a result of the discipline that they experienced. So how does this work and where do we need to process this even as a church family today? Well, one of the things we need to know is that we need to be reminded that we need community and accountability. We need it. We need community and accountability. You know, a a church community that is aware of the sin of another and calls them into obedience to Christ, that is not something that happens in anonymous church settings. It's something that happens when you are close enough to others that you are, are known And the reality is, friends, our lives are not perfect. Our lives still struggle with sin. And all of us need to be close enough to a brother or sister in Christ that our sinful ways might be lovingly, graciously pointed out that we might bring more and more of our life in alignment with God's will. And this only happens when we find ourselves in community and accountability. You know, in in modern church life, people move from place to place to place where your Christian involvement might be three inches deep in 10 locations. And if that's the case, nobody in those locations really knows you well enough to speak into your life. How important it is for us to willfully, with, with full thinking and decision, place ourselves in a Christian community where we see people regularly. 
We're part of a small group. We're part of a Sunday school class. We, we have people that we are, are walking with in life that know us well enough and love us enough that they're able to point out the areas where we have gone astray. We need community and accountability. And this, friends, is a, a, a picture of God's grace. See, we need grace. We need grace in those relationships. And part of that grace is exhibited in that we, we don't have to, to point out every sin that somebody commits. We're not like, you know, a Barney Fife police officer. There's a few of you who watched the Andy Griffith show back in the day. I appreciate your knowing nods. Who, who are wanting to, to write tickets for every mile over the speed limit that is transgressed. There are a few people that maybe have that attitude, but we need to have the grace that knows the heart perspective of another. And someone who is, is occasionally sins, they confess that sin, that you come alongside them and remind them of the forgiveness they have in Christ. But we also need grace in another direction. We also need grace that is willing to assist, to give us the gift of clarity to challenge us and to confront us when we are sinning and we may even be unaware. To challenge us and give us that gracious gift of perspective. Because friends, we need repentance. We need to see our lives turned and changed and moving in the direction of Christ. Whether we've been a believer a week or a hundred weeks, we still have need of our lives being molded in the perspective of Christ. We need repentance, so we need community. We need this gracious gift of others. And we need to be willing to confront sin in others in whose life we are participating. So how do we confront others in sin? Well, according to Matthew 18 that we saw earlier, it begins with a private conversation, a private challenge. Most of the time, that resolves the issue. It's two brothers or, or two sisters in Christ encouraging one another, agreeing on a perspective and moving forward with their life. But occasionally, that is not sufficient. And so there needs to be others brought in to add greater clarity to the situation as you reflect on that together. And many times, that is sufficient. But if it gets beyond that point, then church leadership can be brought in in some way to help address it in different ways. But all of this done, friends, with an eye towards restoration. You know, it's interesting, Matthew 18, these three verses, Jesus talks about confronting another in sin. But you know how he finishes that conversation? Not with three verses on confrontation, but with an extended story a very emotionally extended story about forgiveness. What does that tell us? What is Jesus' heart even in confrontation? His heart is forgiveness. His heart is restoration. And so it's not just that we are a place that confronts sin or that we are a small group or a church that confronts sin, but ultimately we are a group of people that confront sin with an eye towards restoration. So, confront sin. And as I say that, even some of you are thinking about difficult conversations that you might need to have with some in your life. But after we talk about confronting sin, we need to remember what he says also. Not just that we are a place that confronts sin, but also that we are to forgive the repentant. We are to forgive the repentant. When, when someone is, has their sin confronted, 
And they're broken in that sin. And they determine to walk away from that sin and to follow Christ. How should they be treated? How should they be received by the Christian community around them? Obviously, they're, they're square with God. How should we behave towards them when true repentance has taken place? Well, we see that in these verses as we see that we are to forgive the repentant. We see this in verse 7. He says, so you should rather turn to forgive and to comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When, when, you, when you challenge someone, when, when you confront them in sin, if they are repentant, if they recognize their sin, comfort them, forgive them. Come, come around them, and even if it's after an extended process, if somebody is repentant, receive them back. Forgive them and to comfort them. They, they've gone through enough. They're, the conviction is, is deep. Come around them now with love and forgiveness. Not only do we, do we see that, but he continues, and he talks about reaffirming their love for him. No doubt this individual had received some kind of public reprimand. Therefore, publicly, there needed to be some type of affirmation of them. This person was in sin, but they've repented, and they are back now, reaffirming their love for the individual. Not only that, but he says that this is a test of obedience Friends, forgiveness is not something that is left to some arbitrary standard. But Jesus has called us to forgive. It's, 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 not, it's not unclear. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. But if he repents, what? Forgive him. When Jesus teaches us to pray, how does he teach us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. See, we are forgiven by him, and we are to forgive others. It's a matter of obedience to our Savior. That's part of the reason why he continues, and he says he's done all of this. If he's forgiven anyone, it has been in, in the presence of Christ it's been in the shadow of the cross. It's as if Paul is saying, I have been forgiven of so much that I also am compelled by the grace of God to forgive those who have sinned against me. I have done so much that I've been forgiven, Paul says. In the presence, in the light of that, how could I be unforgiving to another? Someone apparently who had caused great pain to Paul and great pain to the church... <laughs> They were called to forgive, to comfort, to affirm, all because of the presence of Christ. When you think about this, it's a reminder that, that we are to be both a place of truth and holiness, but also of grace and restoration. That's what the church is called to be. This is, this is an imperfect place. Right? Because we are an imperfect people. We have a, a perfect, awesome God, but, but we aren't him. Right? We are a, a, a sinful people. But, but what kind of place should we have as we, we wrestle with our sin and we grow through it? Well, we should be a place that does not ignore sin or celebrate it, but a place that stays fast with truth and holiness. But also a place 
that forgives and extends grace, that we wouldn't fall in either of the ditches where Satan wants to steer the bus. See, friends, we are to forgive. And if we are to forgive, uh, who are you to forgive? So I would just challenge you today to, to think about personally applying this principle. Who will you forgive? When you forgive, do you realize that you are, are blessing this repentant sinner? If, if someone has repented of their sin and you forgive them, then you are extending to them a blessing as they are dealing with excessive sorrow over their sin. You're giving them a gift. And if you forgive, you're also honoring your Savior. You're honoring your Savior. Do you realize that, that when you forgive another, it's, it's, a, it's a, a tribute to Jesus? The whole concept of forgiveness was inspired and personified by him. The whole ability to forgive, even deep, hurtful things, is, is found in the shadow of the cross. That we might forgive those who have sinned against us, even as we have been forgiven. We can honor our Savior as we forgive. And then a third thought, it also is a blessing for us. It also is a blessing for us. When we forgive, it is a blessing for us. You know, we sang earlier, my chains are gone. I've been set free. You realize if, if you are unforgiving over past events, you have chained yourself to a past event and you will never be able to get very far away from it because you're chained to that event. But in Christ, it's possible for you to forgive. And when you forgive, the chain is broken and you can be set free. We are to forgive the repentant. Now, a couple weeks ago in this series, we talked about how God prepares us for the mission that he has called us to by comforting us in the midst of our affliction because the comforted comfort. The comfort that God extends to us in the midst of our affliction becomes fuel for us to be able to comfort others as they are being afflicted. But you know what he says here? He says, how do we have a community of people who extend forgiveness to one another? What happens because we have been forgiven by Christ? This is, we are not a perfect people. We're a sinful people. But if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are a forgiven person. And the forgiven are to forgive. That's the principle. The forgiven, forgive. The comforted, comfort. The forgiven, forgive. Now, this morning, as we wrap up our service, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table together. And it's really appropriate that we do so as we celebrate the Lord's table together today. Uh, because we'll, in this communion meal, we, we take uh, bread and, and juice that were given special symbolic significance by Jesus Christ. Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and, and 2,000 years ago, he says, when you eat and drink these things, would you do so in remembrance of me? So this morning, as we, we conclude this service, we will be remembering Christ, but what will we be remembering about him? Well, here's what I want us to remember. The first thing I want us to remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today is that Jesus does not ignore or celebrate sin. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, he died a, a, a terrible death. 
taking the full penalty that your sins and mine deserve. God didn't nod, look the other way. He didn't wink at our sin. He knew of our sin, but he placed the penalty of our sin upon Christ on the cross. And so as we remember the death of Christ through the celebration of the communion elements, we are remembering that God does not ignore or celebrate our sin, but he paid for it in Christ. And not only will we remember that, But also, as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, we remember that there is forgiveness available for the repentant. You know, the death that Jesus died made it absolutely possible for anyone who trusts in him to experience salvation, to have their sins forgiven. But not everyone's sins are forgiven. Only those who are repentant, only those who turn from their self-dependence and come to Christ and bow before him in faith and say, Jesus, I can't do it, but you can. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I lay my sin at your feet. You have nailed it to the cross with you. And now I'm going to get up in faith and walk in a different direction. I'm going to follow you in my day-to-day life. You see, friends, when we do that, whether that's something that happened long ago for you or whether that's something that will happen even this morning, then we can understand that we have true forgiveness. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will be remembering that God does not ignore our sin. He paid for it. And God made a way for us to be forgiven. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to to open your word, to study it, to be encouraged by it. We pray that you would guide us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to truly just remember the forgiveness that you have made possible. And and even as we we gather around this table, that we might also remember those that, that you would have us to forgive as we remember the forgiveness that we have been given. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.